Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's fiery interview with Vin Armani, I want to let you know about today's sponsors, our good friends at the North Spokane Hemp Company. You can find more about them over at North Spokane. That's S-P-O-K-A-N-E, NorthSpokaneCBD.com. They have all your CBD needs. They have flour. They have tinctures. They have CBD products for your dogs. That's right. Even your dogs can use some help with those aches and pains. But the best part about this sponsorship is, of course, the discount that our subscribers get. If you use discount code LIONS, you'll get 15% off your entire order. Not only that, you get free shipping all across the United States. Free shipping on every order over $50. So head on over to NorthSpokaneCBD.com and don't forget to use discount code LIONS at checkout. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, my guest today is the founder of CounterMarkets.com, an agorist newsletter. He's also the founder of cryptocurrency platform Cointext, and uh, he's also the author of the book Self Ownership. And he, like myself, has been uh, has recently made a big move escaping from California. He has headed out to the uh, Pacific island of Saipan. I'm really excited to have him on. Some would even say it's a crime that I haven't had on, had him on the show yet. But I'm very pleased to welcome him today, Vin Armani. Vin, are you ready to roar? I am ready to roar. Excellent, my man. And uh, like I said, I've been meaning to have you on for a long time. Uh, I'm my own worst assistant, so I often uh, lose track of things. But I'm really excited to have you on right now uh, with everything that's been going on because you recently made a big move in your life uh, in response to everything that's been happening around coronavirus and lockdowns. And uh, based on the early returns, it's looking like it was a good move. Uh, But but I want to get into all that a little bit later. But first, I want to dive into a little bit more of what just what makes you tick, how you got uh, involved in uh, libertarianism and agorism and, and all this wild stuff. So uh, thank you for having me on. I was uh, I was raised in a, a pretty left leaning progressive family. My my mother's uh, Mexican, my father's black, and I was raised uh, definitely definitely uh, to question authority, but leaning more towards sort of a, a leftist socialist view. Which being raised in Southern California that I, I didn't really even recognize that there necessarily was too much of another view. I mean, yeah. I, was raised, I was raised in San Bernardino County, which is maybe one of the more conservative counties. Um, but that conservatism ex- expresses itself in a, a much more of a Western. Uh, and when I say Western, I mean like uh, cowboys and Indians type of It's like, it's like a frontier attitude uh, out there yes. in those, in those yes. parts. So I was, while I was raised in a progressive household, you know, my grandfather was a gunsmith. Uh, there were always guns in the house. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't a uh, kind of restrictive environment. Property rights is very important. The idea that you would defend your property, that was just something that was part of the culture. So, you know, the those things that I think define libertarianism that we think of as being on the right, I will tell you that there are a lot of places in this country where like, it's not considered to be right or left. It's just considered to be something that you do. And I think that those are the, those are like places in the West. Right. So, um, that, that was never like a political, these things that I think a lot of people who are not raised in those environments and discover as being like 
part of libertarianism, property rights, gun rights, all of that. That was just, to me, the idea that that wouldn't exist. Right. Being raised in this like cowboy milieu was sort of like, of course, th- of course, that's what you do. Like, it's yeah. not even a question. It's almost like a religion at that point. Right. It's a, it's a way of life more than it is a part of a political conversation. Right. It's not even a part of it. Like you wouldn't even bring it up. The right. idea that what I couldn't have a gun like that. Not I couldn't have a gun. I mean, I, as young as I remember, I remember my grandfather, lo- you know, making ammo. I remember rifle stocks being stocked up, you know, as I'm a kid. And it's just like, that was just a normal, a normal part of existence. And so, you know, as I got older and went away to university, I went to school in DC and started to get a little bit of political awareness. I realized that that was not the view that everybody held. Uh, I still, I still, and even to this day, I, I guess the left, right paradigm, maybe because of that particular upbringing, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But certainly on those things, I understand that those are more identified kind of with the right. Um, I, I then, you know, when I was in my teens, I started, started hacking. I got my, my father's a tech entrepreneur. And in the early 90s, the beginning of the Internet, but even before that with like bulletin board systems and, and freaking, which is like phone hacking and all of that, I was very involved in doing that when I was a teenager. And so in so doing, I ran across a lot of these early uh, cypherpunk and uh, anarchist texts uh, and uh, mix, mingled in with this weird sort of uh, alternative spirituality as well, which came along with sort of the the psychedelic culture and all of these things. Like I said, I was raised in it's San Bernardino. a lot of overlap. It's a lot of overlap. With a lot of overlap, groups, right? Yeah. So I was raised in San Bernardino County and um, out in that desert is where the original full moon parties, moon tribe integral. Some people who, who know like the burning man scene will know these names. Those are the people who ended up founding burning man just several years later because of the problems with the BLM. But I was at those parties from the age of 15, we would drive out into the desert, you know, we'd get a map point, drive out into the desert and, you know, be there. And I've, I, you know, I've been standing on a hill, like with Goa trance in the background and seeing the BLM, you know, trucks coming to break it up and the helicopters coming out of the like night desert. And so like, I've been through all of that. And this was my, these were my formative years. So I I stayed very much involved with the technology side. I stayed involved with the music side and I got a very weird opportunity in my early thirties, met somebody who uh, introduced me to a guy who would later become my agent he basically was like, um, hey, would you like to get paid for, uh, you know, like hot, rich women to take you on dates? And I was like, <laughs> I don't understand. What are you saying? What's like, is this, this real? <laughs> this is real? And not only did it turn out to be real, but um, ended up that Showtime, the network, followed me and my colleagues around for six seasons on a television show called Gigolos. Mm-hmm. And it was within that context as well that I became much more familiar with the scope of the informal economy and that I became a real, uh, I mean, not an an expert on like a global scale, that I became one of the most famous people that was participating in an informal economy. And because of that show, I mean, I've been stopped from, from Prague to Panama City by people, some who I don't even speak their language because it's been dubbed, that show's been dubbed into like 24 different languages now. 
who will stop me on the street and be like, oh, you're my hero, you know? So, <laughs> which is a weird, it's a weird experience. But uh, from that, I wrote a book called Tao of the Gigolo. Uh, my formal education is in philosophy. So I really approached it in that way that I was like, okay, this is an interesting journey. I'm in an interesting environment. And as I was doing a lot of traveling in those early years, I was just voraciously consuming uh, everything from like Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces, to Stefan Molyneux in his pre-Trump days when he was like, you know, Before really- Before the turn, as you might call it. Yes, exactly. When he was really laying out the case for, uh, for anarchism. Mm -hmm. And that was when I discovered that sort of radical, libertarian, voluntarist uh, aspect. And it was certainly in being in those informal economies and seeing that what I understood about economics, especially being in an all cash business, um, that it was that it was significantly different than how I had understood it. And and that I had to if I was going to be successful, I was going to have to let go of a lot of the the incorrect beliefs that I had. And that's when I picked up Austrian started, uh, you know, researching Austrian economics at first, you know, of course, running across Rothbard. Um, and then later, as I was looking for ways to secure, again, I'm in an all cash business to secure my funds uh, and experimenting with things like anonymous private vaults, which they have in in Vegas, you know, and what's a really good safe and what are some of what are things that I could invest in that are sort of more hard assets that I could store this in. And that's when I ran across Bitcoin and that was in 2012 and started experimenting with it, got my first Bitcoin. Uh, it was 15 bucks and, you know, didn't really think too much of it. There weren't a lot of tools for me as a developer at that time to get involved with. And so I kind of put it on the back burner until November of 2013 when it went to a thousand and I started scrambling looking for all of the Bitcoins that I had just been like, oh, here, 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 take. <laughs> Where did I know? put all those Bitcoins? Right, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I found maybe 50% of, of what I had acquired in those few months that I was picking it up and um, had a very, very, cashed out, had a very, very nice Christmas and sort of forgot about it. And it wasn't until 2014 that I, that I picked it back up and started developing on the side. Although I was still really keeping my political views in many ways to myself because I was on a TV show. And the views that I was holding at that time, uh, certainly it was starting to emerge that that was an aspect of the, this new right. So too many of the things that I believed in, although I, I really did not agree with many of the, the sort of the social framework that was being pushed in sort of this new right idea, all of these ideas of property rights and economics and whatnot, I was like, okay, yeah, I know those to be true. So, so you know, I found myself in a difficult position and I was censoring myself, be, you know, out of, out of prudence, really. I mean, there was a lot of money on the table and I, I didn't want to risk that. But then in 2016, when it started to look like, um, when it started to look like we weren't going to get a seventh season, I started doing some, some videos, started some little rants and whatnot started and it was exactly the right time uh 2016 to start doing that and activist post reached out to me and said hey man we i've been watching these like rants that you're doing but you want to do a podcast and and i said i don't want to do like a podcast but i i have this vision of course coming from out of tv i was like i have this vision of doing like a multi-camera show with a, a host and at that time nobody was really doing it i said we were before crowder i'm pretty sure 
Uh, maybe Alex Jones was was doing his thing. Uh, Rogan was certainly doing his thing, you know, but we were doing stuff with titling on the bottom. I was like, I want to do something that's really advanced and, and have interviews and do this whole thing. And so starting in October of 2016, we started the Vin Armani show. And from there, it was, you know, having all kinds of guests. I mean, everybody from we had everybody from Jordan Peterson to Ron Paul to David Icke, um, you know, to people like Jack Spierko, who have become friends of mine, other big podcasters and, and permaculturalists and whatnot, uh, to people like Roger Veer and Eric Voorhees. Uh, we even had Craig Wright <laughs> right on the show before uh, he was he was completely disgraced in the Bitcoin community. So, it, you know, it was in that that I was in, that I was able to expand really the scope of of what I understood and what I could explore. And it's, it's just, it's been an exploration since then. So, I mean, that's my, that's my story. That is such a wild, wild path to Liberty. Um, I don't know how many people get to Liberty through the gigolo movement, <laughs> but, uh, but, you, <laughs> right. but, but, you, but you're one of them. I don't know if it's a movement per se. I, I, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit more because I, sure. did they, I mean, like you weren't a gigolo before this show. Did they just basically I was. turn you? I was. Oh, you were, no. you already were. Okay. So, okay. So, so how did, so maybe you can fill us in. Like, how did you how did you get into to that? If you if you want to divulge a little bit, I mean, feel yeah, free yeah, to, I mean, feel free to I, leave I, out whatever you need to. <laughs> no, no, no. I, leave out. I mean, uh, you know, the show required me to be uh, butt naked on TV, and I think we were the <laughs> first reality show to have full frontal male nudity, which we had in almost every episode. So, in terms of leaving things out, uh, I, you know, I, there's no reason. There's to not much it. to leave out anymore, right? Right. Um, <laughs> I became interested after after having a, a pretty uh, difficult sort of relationship with a woman that I had just fallen head over heels with in LA. I sort of found myself found myself enmeshed with uh, the pickup artist scene in LA. This is like the post the book The Game. Some people mm-hmm. may know about that Neil Strauss's game, uh, book and. Um, all of that community, all of those guys, like I was, I became enmeshed with them. I was living in just, just off the Sunset Strip at the time. My, uh, my roommate actually was a uh, illegal Canadian citizen, uh, immigrant, uh, illegal Canadian immigrant who was sort of on the, on the run from the law and trying to pick up odd jobs and, and actually ended up ghostwriting one of the big sort of books of that scene. And so within that, I actually became relatively well known in that scene and I was dating a lot of women and one of the women that I was dating uh, one day just told me that uh, you know that she had started escorting and that she was kind of like a high-end escort and whatnot and um, I said that's really that's really interesting and through a sort of series of events she ended up introducing me to as I say the guy who ended up being my agent she said you'd be really good at this you know you're really great with women and I met the guy, we talked, and he basically brought me on as, as you know, someone that he was going to represent in his agency, Cowboys for Angels, which, is, which was very new at the time. Uh, they had four or five guys. They're in like three cities or something like that. And at, when we met, he told me, oh, you know, also, we just did a pilot for Showtime uh, about the agency, a reality show. Uh, but you seem like a behind-the-scenes type of guy. You probably wouldn't want to do that. And I was, uh, you know, already a senior software developer at that time. Like that's that was my day job. And I told him, no, nah, no, nah, you know, I really, yeah, I really don't. That's that's not me. And so I had been like going on, you know, going and seeing clients for maybe six months before he just called me one day and was like, uh, "Vin, you're on the show. Don't say no." And 
turned out that there had actually, yeah, at first I, you know, I was like, oh, this guy's just whatever, you know, it's a meeting in LA. So I was like, yeah, people will say anything. Um, but no, there really had been a pilot. They really, Showtime really picked up the show. And um, yeah, it became a kind of a cult hit. I, it, it was, it was an absolute like time of adventure for me. So I was a single guy and you know, with it, they, he said that he gave me that call and within two weeks I was in Vegas and we were shooting the, the first season. So it's just kind of, yeah, just kind of a whirlwind. But obviously, even though I had been working, you know, n- there's no marketing like having a reality show about your business. Sure. So, absolutely. yeah. So yeah. It, it went from being something that I was, you know, maybe doing a couple of times a month to something that, that I was doing multiple times a week. Right, and right. then it just it became not not only my profession but my you know my brand as well. So during this time, I mean, you're you're operating, operating I guess, in like the cash economy, sort of the agorist economy in a way. While you're also on the reality show, like in the very main, mainstream economy, at sort of the same time. I'm curious, like this this seems to be the point where you sort of really started to develop your your really libertarian philosophy more. So so what what was it besides like the stuff you're reading besides reading Rothbard and all that stuff? What was it that you were seeing in that kind of operating in that black economy to to an extent? Um, what is it you saw kind of firsthand that helped guide you along that path even further? Well, I think important to sort of the my adoption of agorism, which I didn't really come across until I would say really until my emergence in 2016 into like the public and, and expressing my views that I had, I had heard the term. I hadn't really delved super deeply into it. But when I came across Konkin's New Libertarian Manifesto, I was like, oh, I've been living this. And I think one of the big things is this understanding of the gray economy, which I think is much more important than the, the black market, the gray market, I think is, is incredibly important. And the difference with the, the gray market and the black market and what I was operating in was a gray market, which is the reason why we were able to be on television. So that was sort of the line when the show first came out. That's what really blew people away was they said, well, this has to be fake. This has to be fake because what they're doing is illegal and they couldn't be showing this on TV. These must be actors. Uh, even so far as uh, you could probably, it's probably still up somewhere online, but um, 20, was it 2020 or Dateline? They both interviewed me. But I think the first one was Dateline, I think, uh, with Juju Chang. She came out and interviewed all of us. And uh, she... You know, within the within the piece itself, they actually lay out and they're like, you know, we went and looked and researched and actually what they do in the way that they do it is legal in all 50 states. And so basically what's legal is uh, you cannot. So prostitution is contracting of sexual services in exchange for money. Mm-hmm. And so this is like a very this is like very, very important. You can't contract for sexual services in exchange for money, an explicit contract but you can contract for time and companionship. So I can't say that I'm going to do some specific act. This is why if you, you know, go back in to like old episodes of cops, when they would do like the stings of prostitutes yeah, on yeah, the street, right. they would always say, you have to get them to say what they're going to do. You have right. to get them to say like blow job for tw- what can I get for $20? You have to get them to say blow job. Can't just be, if, you want to hang out for an hour. Cause that's not gonna right. Because that's crime. totally legal. That's totally legal. And so there's an entire economy. And people don't realize that, like, 
it's totally legal to be like, okay, yeah, we can hang out for an hour. And what I saw also, you know, as I also engaged with a lot of the women in the industry, not just like working with them. So like maybe a couple would hire like me for the wife and then, uh, you know, one of these women for the, the husband and it'd be like a double date sort of situation. We had those, but also just, you know, I was in relationships with, with high end female escorts because I was one of the few people that they felt comfortable dating, which is it's kind gotta of, be, it's gotta be hard to relate to like a, a quote unquote normal person when you're a jiggle. Exactly. I mean, so, I mean, that probably, that makes sense. And that would be the only sort of person you end up able well, to. Well, it was, it was easy for me to relate. It was hard. It's hard for them to be able to find a guy who's okay with what they do. Right. right? Yeah. It was, it was actually relatively, I could pretty much date whoever I wanted. I mean, after all, women were paying me to, uh, to date <laughs> right. them. Right. Uh, and I was a TV star. Which certainly helps, right? You can always justify like, well, I'm dating a TV star and walking around Vegas and getting free <laughs> bottle service and, you know, VIP treatment everywhere and free meals and people, you know, wanting your wanting to take a picture everywhere and all of that, right? So that's very attractive to women. But what I what I got to see was I got to see how this oldest profession had evolved. And all of the mechanisms in the private sphere that had evolved to keep them them safe. And so things like screening protocols, you know, that women would use, templates of, of their disclaimers on their websites, review sites, places like the Erotic Review that recently got shut down, um, and systems of whitelisting and blacklisting clientele of, of referrals and all of this. So this informal economy that in fact was highly advanced, that had all kinds of um, professional services within it from bookers to screeners, um, you know, to, to private organizations that would do ID checks and all of these things, very, very like complex and lucrative. And so in seeing that, I said, okay, um, this is like, this is, this is actually a great example of the private sector really providing security. Right. And I mean, if you're talking about security here, like, so you're talking about women who for decades, because of this system, and if they followed within the system, were able to work without a problem from law enforcement, without ever being assaulted, without having ever being robbed, any of these things, uh, all through the systems that had been set up within the private market. Not, not through regulation, not through business licensing, not through any of that stuff, not through insurance or any of that, but through these private, uh, you know, services that were being offered in the marketplace. And I said, look, this, this is a life or death one, right? This isn't just like, this isn't just like stopping someone from like, you know, vandalizing your business. This is literally life or death. Sure. This Without these uh, mechanisms in place, these women would often probably be in much more dangerous situations as they exactly. probably are now that a lot of these sites have been taken down. Yes, 100%. And that was part of what the big deal about taking these sites down was, was that they're, they, the narrative from the state was that, you know, we're stopping criminal enterprises or we're stopping women from being trafficked and abused. And it's like, no, you're actually exposing them to a great deal of harm. Uh, they created these themselves and they've been using them. And this is the free market uh, protecting them. So I very much lived it. 
You know, I mean, there's theory and then there's practice. I was living this every day of my life and people that I loved and respected and who were business colleagues and personal friends and, you know, uh, girlfriends and lovers were living it every day as well. And so it was, you know, it was almost a decade of, yeah, of, of, of it just being clear and obvious that this was the way to go and clear and obvious that the state didn't have the answers and that the state was an aggressor more than anything. You know, a willing buyer, willing seller. I got to see every day that the people that I was dealing with weren't, I mean, they were literally the, your, your next door neighbor, like literally your next door neighbor. Normal, wonderful people, people who, you know, regular clients of mine who I saw for years who became great friends. And, you know, people who are everything from, you know, farmers in Texas to uh, CEOs of, um, you know, Silicon Va companies in Silicon Valley. And it, all great people and all just doing this and all operating in the gray market, even down to federal agents. I had federal agents, law enforcement agents who were clients of mine, wow. you know. So, so, yeah, man, I got to see that this exists. That, that this can work, that the free market can truly provide at a, at a global scale for a gigantic industry. And um, I became dedicated to, to seeing that expand because I, I think that it's a path to more prosperity more and, and more, um, more security really for people. Hey there, kitty cats. I need to take a quick time out here to tell you about another awesome libertarian podcast. This is our good friends, Nate and Charlie, over at Good Morning Liberty. These son of a guns, they do this thing five days a week, and they absolutely kill it. Uh, these guys are both musicians, and they both actually own a business working in the healthcare IT industry. So they've seen a lot of what goes on in a, a highly intervened-in market like healthcare. So they have a lot of great insights, and they really do a bang-up job talking about current events and really speaking to a lot of the news that's in the headlines and filtering it all through the ideas of liberty and kind of uh, shutting down socialist solutions that come up. So you can find more by subscribing on all your favorite podcasts app. Wherever you listen to this one, you can probably find, not probably, you can definitely find Good Morning Liberty, or you can check out their website, BernieLies.com. What a great name. Head over to BernieLies.com or search for Good Morning Liberty. You are not going to regret subscribing to this awesome show. All right, Ben, now I want to take a little a fast forward to uh, the present day. You're, you're no longer a gigolo. Uh, you are. Uh, you just recently, like I said, moved to Saipan. So I want to talk a little bit about what led up to that move and particularly when you started to have, I guess, that uh, agorist spidey sense tingling for you that said, you know, there's some things going down here and I don't see them going down a good path. Like, what was it just when you first started hearing about coronavirus? I mean, when did you really start to get that itch saying, OK, I have to make some kind of move here because things are going south? Well, I, like I said, my background is in philosophy. That's my formal education. And, you know, all the way back to Plato's Republic, which is, I mean, we could probably say that in terms of Western philosophy, that's, that's the oldest. I mean, I guess if we want to include some stuff from maybe the Torah, that's older, but the Republic is 350 years before Christ. So the, the people who were writing the New Testament were aware of, they were Greek speakers, many of them. Uh, they were aware of uh, Plato. They were aware of these ideas. These were already old philosophical ideas. So in the West, Plato's Republic is quite old. And, you know, he talks about the nature of the state. And he certainly, th there's, there's a, 
quote from the Republic that I've been, you know, repeating often through this crisis. And this is Plato writing in 350 BC. He says, the people always have some champion which they place above them and nurse into greatness. This and no other is the root from which a tyrant springs. When first he appears above ground, he is a protector. And so what he's saying in there in 350 BC is he's saying this and no other is the root from which a tyrant springs. So he's saying there's one narrative that leads to tyranny. One, a single one. This will always be said by the tyrant. And it is, I am here to protect you and what I am doing is for your own good. And so whenever you hear that, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you're listening to is a tyrant. But if you were listening to a tyrant, you could be guaranteed that that's what you would hear, right? right? So whenever you hear that, your spidey sense should go, bah, 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 bah. Plato, 350 BC, the oldest text that we have that is the basis of our entire philosophy, including the basis of, or at least a partial basis, of any Western political system that you are in, right? So it's like the, the foundational basis of the political system that you're in, the people who created that were familiar with this text and the, the concepts that, that were described and had, as they had emerged and evolved. So I've always been waiting for that but back in, this would have been 20, so I think this was 2017. Yeah, 20, no, would have to be before that. Maybe 2015, 2016. Um, I did a, a video series called The Ascendant Project. It's on, it's on my YouTube. It's rather old. And I had been studying a, a guru, an Indian guru by the name of P.R. Sarkar for about 20 years. Um, since, since I was in, in my early 20s. And he talked about an idea called the human social cycle. And he said that humanity moves in these cycles. He was writing in the 70s, mostly. And um, I had started to see that there was something happening at that time. I had started to see some, some of the things that he had described coming about. And if people want to know more about this cycle, it's very like it's very standardized and, and laid out. So even at that time, I had said, and what that that the Ascendant Project is about, I think it's about eight hours, maybe like 13, 14 videos. What it's about is like, there's a shift about to happen. There's a big shift coming. And what the basis of that shift was at that time, I couldn't see very, very clearly what that was. And then about two years ago, I started to really see it come into view. I did a interview with Chris DeRose. If people want to look it up. I, I believe it's called uh, Blockchains as Matriarchy and the Role of Messiahs. But what I'm talking about in there is that I, I was seeing these hashtag movements. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing, and Me Too in particular, and, but Black Lives Matter is another one, right? So I was seeing these hashtag movements and I was seeing that they were taking down these very powerful individuals at the top of the patriarchy, right? The system that we had had that is, that is the patriarchy. And I, I started to, to say publicly that what we're seeing is the rise of the matriarchy and the rise of the devouring mother. And it was very helpful that Jordan Peterson right around that same time 
was discussing these concepts. You know, this is a concept that I had pulled from out of Joseph Campbell, uh, as I had said earlier, that I had been, been reading. And then, you know, as I started following Peterson, and then very early on, as he emerged, I was able to get him on my show. Uh, obviously, it, it must have been very early on because I, I didn't have that many, many uh, people checking it out, right? This is Yeah, I, got, I had him on Lions of Liberty right around that time, too. But that was exactly. you know, the next time I tried to get him on, it was not possible. <laughs> he got yeah, way too big at that it, point. Right? So, so you know exactly what, uh, you know exactly what yeah. that time was. You got to strike early with these guys when they start to get big because they're going to get too big real quick. Exactly. And so, and, and so I started talking about it then. And then when I saw the coronavirus... And I saw all of the symbolism that was happening. You know, I saw the, the term invisible enemy being used. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I had, uh, it was interesting that like just a year before that, I had moved to New Hampshire. And just before I moved, I was at um, Free Coast Festival. I did a speech. Uh, if people want to look at it online, it's called an agorist sermon. It was in uh, the Old Stone Church. They had a little event. I did a little speech. And I I talked about Cotton Mather there. And Cotton Mather, uh, during the Salem witch trials, he was heavily involved. And afterwards, he wrote a book with his father, Increase Mather, who was the uh, head of Harvard University at the time, basically justifying what they had done during the Salem witch trials. Even at the time when everybody knew it was BS, he was still justifying it. And the name of that book is The Wonders of the Invisible World. And he uses the term invisible enemy. This was something that was used. This was a term used during the Salem witch trials and other witch panics. It's been used during many mass hysterias around the world. So when I saw that, I said, well, clear. Okay. The president is, is using the term invisible enemy. We're in a mass hysteria. We're in a mass hysteria yeah. now. And I've been enough of a study, uh, uh, enough of a student of history to know that when the state becomes actively involved in the perpetuation of a mass hysteria, nothing but suffering can come from that. And that was really the story of the Salem witch trials. The problem with the Salem witch trials was not that there were uh, these uh, rubes, rube farmers who were accusing people of, uh, uh, of witchcraft. The problem was that there was no separation of church and state amongst those people. Right. And that the most respected academics, literally the head of Harvard University and Cotton Mather, I mean, in terms of American intellects, is a is a giant. And certainly of of the colonial period, he was the he was the academic giant of that time. There was there's there's no one even close. These were people justifying it. And I saw the same thing happening. And so. And for many people now, I mean, I guess we have uh, to separate a separation of church and state in a hypothetical sense. But mm-hmm. for many, it seems that um, the state has become the church, at least for many, you know, on the, on the progressive left or the people that you might be most familiar with. The people more likely to promote these hysterias, more likely to promote the hashtag culture, they view the state as sort of omnipotent, at least at least when it's their people kind of in charge, I guess. Well, I, I, I think that we have... I don't know that it's necessarily the state. And I think that that's the, that's really the message that I've been trying to communicate is that, you know, culture has always been a leading indicator of politics, but now politics is completely driven by culture and nothing else. Um, And the election of Donald Trump proved that. I mean, the election of Obama was the harbinger and the indicator because you had 
it, and it was crude at the time, but like it being crude is the, the sort of, it was, it allows it to not have cynicism. So the shepherd fairy hope and change posters, right? And the fact that I, I believe it was fast company that said when Obama was elected, that brand Obama was the brand of the year. They always give a brand of the year. And they gave the brand of the year to brand Obama. And so it was because you think about what was Obama elected on. He was literally elected on those Shepherd Fairy posters, hope and change. The iconic people know the iconic propaganda posters, but they are propaganda. Shepherd Fairy is a propaganda artist. He calls himself a propaganda artist. That's I mean, it's, it's like that's what he does. He's the obey guy. Some people may not know that. They're still walking around with the Obey shirts on. You know, it used to be Andre the Giant has a crew. That's what he started out with. And nobody knew what the hell that meant. And then he put Andre the Giant's face. That's Andre the Giant inside the Obey thing. It's just weird. People don't even understand it. And that's his point. And so you saw that, like, okay, Obama is not a political animal. He's a cultural animal. And that's still the case. And so what we had is we moved from a political president to a cultural president. And Donald Trump is the greatest example of a cultural artifact. I mean, he is the quintessential cultural artifact of America. You could, I mean, it would be difficult to find somebody who would be more appropriately described as that. And he is moved by culture. He watches the damn mainstream media. Here's a man who has the strength of the greatest intelligence services on earth at his disposal to get his information. And yet we know that he's watching Fox News and CNN and all of that because he's tweeting out fake news or he's retweeting the Fox News people. And it's like, bro, um, what? <laughs> what? He and is a caricature of every, you know, your Republican dad or uncle who sits around getting angry at CNN and then sucking in your, your right information from Fox News and regurgitating it all back out. But that is culture, right? That's yes. not politics. Right. That's 100 percent mm -hmm. culture. And so what I've been saying is and that was the Salem witch trials. That is every mass hysteria. A mass hysteria is a cult is a cultural artifact. It is culture driving the narrative. There's not politics involved. There's not policy involved. And the policy follows the culture. It's, it always had, you know, to a degree, culture is a, a you know, it's, it's a leading indicator of politics. Where the culture goes, the politics will go. But in this case, it's moving fast. The culture has become completely corrupt on all sides. It's not a right or left thing. Like, it's completely corrupt. It's, it's the theory of reflexivity. If you, you know, everybody who's tweeting Soros is doing this, Soros, Soros. If you haven't read or listened to George Soros lay out his theory of reflexivity, you shouldn't say Soros. Because he's, it's, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's, a, it's, it's that if you have things in the right position, it's just dominoes. You just knock one over. Boom. And I saw, here's a domino. And I watched and I said, in March, I said, troops will be, no, in February, really. I mean, but, but March is when I said it publicly. I said, started saying publicly, troops will be on the streets and undesirables will be rounded up. And people were like, what? What? This was like, just as Gavin Newsom is saying, stay home for two weeks to save grandma. And I'm like, troops will be on the streets. Undesirables will be, will be rounded up. 
And people are like, what are you talking about, Vin? What are you just got to flatten the curve and this is all going to go back to normal. Come on. Flatten the curve, Vin. It's like, no, what are you saying? You're totally overreacting. You're no, what are you talking about? And I was like, dude, this, there's only one way that this can go. If you allow them to have this, if you allow them to do this, you're fucked. You are fucked. This whole system is fucked because it doesn't stop. That's the problem. It's reflexivity. It's a feedback loop that's bouncing off. And so in, in March, the last week of March, I basically, I told my, uh, my family, I told my wife and I told my mother, uh, I said, and they were the only ones I told because Alan Watts has a, a quote where he says that I've always loved. He says, never tell the devil you're leaving town, just go. And I've taken that to heart, especially in situations that are crucial like this. And we had been thinking about moving to Saipan. It had come on my radar because Mark Edge of Free Talk Live had come out here and someone was like, oh, Mark moved to Saipan with a one-way ticket. I was like, what the hell? So I hit him up and he told me about the place and I told my wife and we we're living in Southern California. She was like, oh, that, I think that's interesting. Let's maybe do it at the end of the year. And so it had been on my radar in this weird way for maybe four or five months. And I really, you know, I'm someone who I keep my ears and eyes open to the universe and where my attention goes. And I believe that's the path of least resistance. I've, I've written about that a lot. I've experienced that in sort of my spiritual practice. And, and so I, I was looking and I said, okay, so here's the deal. There's going to come a point when we won't be able to leave. Uh, it's going to be soon. I don't know how soon, but it's going to be soon. And there's going to come a point when undesirables are going to start to be rounded up. Again, I don't know how soon, but it's going to be soon. And those two things are going to coincide with each other. Because when they start rounding up undesirables, the, the last place you want to be is at a border crossing, an airport, anywhere where they need to check your ID. Right? So that's the, it's, it becomes very deadly to move at that point. And we just know this from history. And so I said, look, I am okay in my heart with the fact that I may very well get, get picked up and I probably am on a list somewhere. I'm okay with that. You know, I told my wife this and my mother this. I said, but, you know, I have, I have two daughters. I have, they're, they're young. One is one years old and one is four years old. There's things that I'm doing in Bitcoin that, are, that nobody else is doing. I can, I, have, I can have a good impact there. I would like to continue to be a father for longer. And so I said, look, we have an opportunity to go and maybe give ourselves a life, maybe just give ourselves more time. And if you, if, you know, I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to do that unless you guys, um, you know, at least my wife, unless uh, you really want to stay. And she said, no, let's go. And so I said, okay, let's, let's plan for getting everything ready, like within the next three weeks. And I started to keep my eye on, uh, Saipan and on travel and all of that. And then the, gover the government here in the Northern Marianas Islands announced that on April 5th, that was going to be the last flight in or out of the island. And then they were going to shut it down. Wow. And so I said, okay, well, got to be on that flight. And so it was literally like with the clothes on our back, basically our maximum luggage allowance. We got on the plane. There was next to nobody on any of the planes at that time. This is early April. And I mean, we had four, the four aisles around us to ourselves, basically, and 
got on the plane, came here. We were forced to go into a 14-day quarantine, which they were doing at the time for everybody who arrived. And so we went through that. But luckily, there were you know people on the ground here who were very helpful to us. And, uh, and so now we're here and it's been calm. And when all of this happened, you know, I mean, I, I knew that it was, you know, bullshit from the beginning and I've been very public about that fact. And I knew that there were going to be troops on the streets and now there are, and they're not going anywhere. And the lockdowns, what's ha what's about to happen now is I just can no longer be of any help. Like I've been trying to warn people as best I could, but now the curfews have started. And once the curfews start, history has just said what that looks like. So, you know, I can't be of help to, to people really anymore. So now I'm going to focus on building, bu being here and building and focusing on things that are more in my own personal sphere of influence. And, um, you know, now is a time for survival, really. Like people have got to figure out their own tactics of how they're going to survive this thing. I want to talk a little bit more about where you see this going before we uh, talk a little bit more about, you know, what Saipan is like itself. But um, when you say, like, you think there's going to be a point where you can't leave anymore, do you uh, see them, like, do you see, like, borders just around the world just completely closing? Or do you think this is more something that, you know, dissidents might want to worry about? Or, I mean, like, where, where do you see that? What do you actually mean by that? By that you can't, you, there won't be anywhere to go? So the, there's, there's a few things that are now in place that are a problem. So one is the contact tracing regime. So it's very, very likely that there will be a quote unquote second wave of this coronavirus. Uh, and they're gonna blame it on the, um, the protests that were everywhere. Mm -hmm. So regardless of whether it has anything to do with the protests or not, uh, regardless of even if it's real, regardless of if the numbers are real, which, a lot of them weren't recently, there is going to be a second wave. And the contact tracing that's that was just put on to everybody's, it's so weird that like, just as a side note, it's so weird that, that the way that the human brain, the bug in the human brain, uh, Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. And for years, people have been saying, there's, a, there's an agenda to track you. There's an agenda to track you. There's an agenda to track you. And Apple and Google now, in their latest updates, both of them, worldwide, have put literal Big Brother tracking software onto everybody's phone that connects you with all the other phones around you and does all of that. And it's on everybody's phone, literally, right now. Literally. And yet there are still people who think that there's an agenda to track you is some sort of a wild conspiracy theory. <laughs> it's, it's not even hidden anymore. It's here's the app. Here's what we put on your phone. Here it is. Enjoy. It's like, wait a minute. You still think that's a conspiracy? Take out your phone. <laughs> and so I'm like this. That's when you get to that point, you can't help people anymore. You can't help them anymore. That's, that's, it's, they, they are going to have to go through the nightmare themselves. And the crazy part about it is everyone who has written about this or thought about this, they have described that exact scenario. In 1984, I think one of the most powerful scenes that Orwell pre presents in that whole book 
is uh, Winston has been thrown in jail. We've met his, or, or he's being held, right, before they're going to do all the, all the things to him. It's kind of in like a holding sort of a, a detention center. And we've met his neighbor before. And his neighbor, we met his neighbor's kids, his across-the-hall neighbor, and his neighbor's kids who were in the spies, they call them. That's like the, the Hitler youth, kind of, who their whole job is to spy on everybody. And his neighbor finds himself in the detention center with Winston. And Winston says, well, oh, my God, how'd you get in here? And he says that his kids turned him in, lied on him, and turned him in. He wasn't, of course, doing whatever his kids said, but they lied on him, and they turned him in. And he says how proud he is of his kid for that. And it's a powerful, powerful scene because it shows the, the, just how powerful cognitive dissonance is. Just exactly what Mark Twain says of how difficult it is to convince someone that they've been fooled after they've been fooled. So if you want to know where this goes and how bad this is going, all you have to look at is how fooled are the people around you. Because the degree to which they are fooled is the degree to the degree of suffering which can be inflicted by those who want to inflict the suffering. And don't get it twisted. One to 2% of the population, we know this, are psychopaths. They're born psychopaths. They test as psychopaths on the hair psychopathy checklist. We know this. This is like uh, understood in terms of science. And those people aggregate heavily into positions of state power. Those are the people. Those are the bad apples. And when you expand the scope to allow them to have power and to do shit that they want to do anyway, they will do it. That's how Jews got gassed in gas chambers. That's how the Armenians had their genocide. That's how it happens. And before it happened, none of them thought it would happen. I guarantee you there were European Jews in the boxcars on their way to extermination camps who were saying to the others in the boxcar with them, no, don't worry, it'll be okay. I mean, it can't, it couldn't, they wouldn't do anything that crazy. What are you talking about? Right. This is still, this is Germany or this is Czechoslovakia. Come on, we've lived here our whole lives. They're not going to do anything to us. Off the car, into the showers, you're dead. That's real. That's not hyperbole. <laughs> this and, happens. And the things that we're going on now are things that libertarians, uh, anarchists, uh, agorists, uh, conspiracy theorists, however you want to lump all of, I know, our type of people in, in together, uh, have been talking about this stuff for, for so long. I mean, I, I remember talking about the police state when I, you know, when I first got really into the libertarian movement, and people would tell me that sort of thing. Like, look, that's not going to happen here. You don't need to worry about that stuff here. And now we're at a point where literally today there's tr literal troops on the street. And yeah. And the same people still think we're crazy. <laughs> so it's, well, it's, you're right. And you, get, you get to a point where you can only do so much. Well, the scarier part is that the libertarians, anarchists, and agorists who have been saying this are sitting on their hands. So many of them. Mm -hmm. They're just, sitting just on their waiting hands. waiting to ride it out. Oh, yeah. Oh, hoping, hoping that they've, that people have overreacted. Right. You know, it's funny that, that like, 
you know, people on my Twitter, as I've called this, right, for months and months and months and months, I've called every single thing. You can go back. It's public. It's there on Twitter. Scroll through my timeline. And at every step, there's people with, you know, voluntarist in their name, libertarian in their bio, who are like, oh, man, I sure do hope you're wrong, Ben. And then it's right. And then I say the next thing. I sure do hope you're wrong, Ben. And then it's right. And then I say the next thing. I sure do hope you're wrong, Ben. And I'm like, you're dead. Yeah. You're dead. The I bullet can't... was just fired. It's on your way. It's on the way to your head. Well, I sure hope you're wrong, Ben. <laughs> I mean, it's too late. <laughs> it's like how many times, you know, if you're plotting a graph, how many, how many data points do you need before you see the trend? Okay, I understand if there was only two. I understand if there was only 10. But if I'm giving you data points on a daily basis and they're all coming true, and I tell you it's going there, it's going up to the top of that. See that? See this trend? You're like, sure, hope you're wrong, Ben. I bet, I hope it just like turns around and goes back down. Boop. No, man. Human beings. We go and we make the same mistakes over and over and over again. The only reason we don't make those mistakes, again, is because we've learned from them or someone around us has learned from them and they stop us. Every single person who went through the horrors of World War II is dead now. They're dead or they were so young at the time that they don't really have any good advice to give you. They were like five years old and barely remember the concentration camps. All of those people are dead. That's why this is happening. Now we gotta learn again, I guess. We have to learn it again. And that was the same sort of situation of, you know, every genocide that's happened. And so now what people have to think about is who, what people should be asking themselves are, is who are the Jews? Who are the Jews? That's the big question. And you've got to ask yourself, am I a Jew? Am I, am I a European Jew in the 1930s? And, and what, what would be the classification of that? So it would certainly be somebody who, who had skepticism of the state, right? That was the big problem, that you had a, an, an allegiance or an alliance to an ideology that was not wholly in line with the state. And that, didn't, that wasn't just the Jews, because first it was the socialists. Like in the, in the Niemöller poem, first they came, right? First they came for the socialists, then they came for the trade unionists, then they came for the Jews, and then they came for me. And the guy writing it is a Christian priest. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So you got to ask yourself, are you on that list? And if so, you've got a very limited amount of time now. So limited that that's the reason why, I'm, why there's no reason for me to speak on this any, any longer and why this is going to be like my last 
sort of thing to speak about this because now it's time for me to build. I can't help anybody. There's a, there comes a point when you can't help people anymore, right? There comes a point when, when it's like, Hey man, like you say, bullet is aimed at your bullet is flying towards your head. You have this one last second and then I can't help you anymore. Well, this is the last second because when it's too late, it's funny. It's funny, dude. Like I'm, I know I'm kind of like ranting here, but it's, it's since it is sort of my, my last, this is why you're here, Ben. This is why you're here. <laughs> um, I didn't bring you on here not to rant. Trust me. So, <laughs> so my, you know what? People have been calling me up and, and, and I've been mentioning some of it, you know, and they, they hear, Oh yeah. Oh, you went to Saipan and it, it, it ranges from various different things to like, well, where else did you research? Two things like, well, how are the schools? You know, we're wondering about how are the schools. And I'm like, you, first off, you want to know where else I researched. Why don't you just figure out where I am, right? Do you assume I didn't research? You've been following me for three years. Do you assume that I did not research anywhere else? Just I threw a dart up- on a map and said, ah, all right, Saipan, cool. Right. Why, not? Why, why? Like, I don't need to tell you about the places that are reasonable. Hold on. I've got a flyaway uh, umbrella. We've got, <laughs> we, we've got trade winds here. Um, I don't need to tell you about the other places that are researched. I can tell you where I'm at. That's the first thing. And then it's like, oh, but, you know, this this whole like, well, well, what about the schools? And like, well, we're not sure. And, they, like, they want to find out you doing making a wrong decision or a wrong move so it can justify them not making a move because you have to pull coals through everybody else's moves. And that lets you say, well, I didn't do anything because, you know, everyone else is making these wrong maneuvers. So I, I just stayed safe and stayed home. I mean, maybe. Right. Maybe it's maybe it's an excuse. Maybe this is it's been an interesting. You know, I mean, from a spiritual, I always look at things from kind of that that, that like cross of the spiritual and the psychological, which is why I really, you know really like Jordan Peterson, really like sort of the mythopoetic way of looking at things, Joseph Campbell, Jung, and, and my own experiences, certainly in the psychedelic culture, have, uh, have informed me in that regard. And, you know, seeing, seeing people do that is kind of like, there's something there about like, well, maybe this person just wants to die, you know? And these are people with children too. Like I hate to be so harsh, but it's like maybe this person's soul, maybe they need to suffer. Like maybe that maybe that's really what they want. They want to die and they want to watch their children die. I know that sounds like so harsh, right? Like it sounds so terrible. But it's hard for me to understand, like when you're standing, when you're standing at that place, and, and mind you, these are people who like who could do it who it's not like financially even necessarily a burden. It would just be uncomfortable, right? you know, and, it, but it's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm sitting here sweating in Mexico in my uh, makeshift podcast <laughs> studio. I'm very uncomfortable, but I, I still think I made a, a good decision. <laughs> no, you, you definitely did. And that's, and it, it, but, but you know, it's again, it's, it's history. It's history. And it's, you know, since this has happened, I've, I've made a study of, those Ashkenazi European Jews who did see things going wrong and who did leave when they still could. And it's kind of an untold story of the great suffering that they went through as well. A lot of them didn't leave because they couldn't get visas to other places, Hmm. which, you know, for those people who are like, 
well, did you research other places? Well, <laughs> you, you go research other places and see where you can get a visa. Yeah. See where has the borders open that an American can come in. Go look, look. That's what I tell them. Look. And for you, Saipan is, I believe, a, a, a territory or a, 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 a commonwealth. So you don't have yep. to cross an actual border. You just, yep. you know, you just get on a plane and you're still in the U.S. Yep. Technically, even though you're 15 hours away. <laughs> yep. If you travel, if you travel through Hawaii, you don't ever even need a passport. Mm-hmm. But there's no national guard here. V- very little police presence. There's going to be no protests here because there are no white police officers. <laughs> right. As a matter of fact, there's almost no white people. And the ones that you see are mostly Russians. Hmm. So, you know, although everybody born here is an American citizen, but they're mostly of either Chamorro, which is the native people, or uh, Chinese or Filipino descent. And so it's a place that's very unlike anywhere else in the United States. Very unlike anywhere else in the United States. Uh, and, And it already has, you know, many people living off the land here. I go out in the morning and I walk on the beach and people are out there spear fishing and, you know, they're out there in outrigger canoes fishing. And so there's no supply chain issues when you're getting your fish from the guy that's literally fishing, you know, off the beach right next to you. And it's got I mean, it's got great agricultural resources that just aren't used because it's been a welfare state here. The feds have just the feds just give them money. And so they just kind of live off that the local people. The only people that own businesses here are either Filipino or Chinese because the local people pretty much just work for the government and they just get money from the, the, the feds. But but were the feds to stop giving them money, the economy can be flipped like that. Right. There's only 55,000 people here and it's just endless natural resources, really. Um, so, you know, you, you, you find a place to go to. And this is minimal suffering, you know, compared to the, the Jews who did leave. Many of them left, and there's a story of one ship in particular, I'm forgetting the name, that went to like 20 different ports all around the Americas, all these countries, like trying to find someplace. The Cubans denied them, New York denied them, like all this, right? And they're stuck on this ship, but you know where they weren't stuck? Auschwitz, Birkenau. They did eventually get off the boat. They did eventually all settle in the Americas. Many of them became incredibly successful. You know what they don't have? Lynch tattoos on their arms. Right. So it's have, like uh, they don't have tracking, uh, COVID tracking exactly. apps. <laughs> exactly. Everybody's going to suffer. You just have to decide how much you want to suffer. And what people need to understand is, you know, everybody's like, well, we're just we're seeing, you know, we're seeing if it's it's getting pretty bad. What you got to understand is that like there, at the time when it's completely clear and there's no risk and it's like they're putting pe- like you say the bullet has been fired and it's heading towards your head it's too late it's too late it's too late if you don't think it's bad enough already cuz you don't see the trajectory i'm sorry but like as of today you're doomed yeah, I know if that <laughs> if you're not seeing it now, I mean, maybe I'd even grant you a week ago to, to, to not quite be seeing it yet. But if you're not seeing it now, like you said, at some point, there's just no hope for some people. Like yeah, you're doomed. You're doomed. So, but, like, that's it. Then I want to kind of just uh, wrap up by putting myself in the shoes of, you know, what I might 
think of uh, as my, I don't know about my average listener, but a lot of listeners out there who might be people that have been involved in the libertarian movement, have been gotten into the libertarian philosophy over the last few years. Maybe they've started to see some of these things over the years and, and some of that spidey sense has started to go off. But, you know, they're just in a position in life where it would never occur to them to actually pick up and leave and actually, you know, see the situation and, until perhaps maybe, maybe a person like that over the last couple of months listening to people like you out there talking about this stuff is actually saying, oh, shit, I'm here now. Like, I'm actually here now. These things that I, that I just started to realize are philosophically possible are actually happening. But maybe, you know, I don't feel like I'm in the best financial situation to pick up and move my whole life. Maybe my, my wife and my kids don't want to go anywhere. What is your advice to this kind of person who is maybe aware, maybe even realized the bullet's been fired, but doesn't see a way to necessarily dodge it, at least not dodge it in maybe the same way you have of, of picking up their physical life and moving, moving somewhere else. What advice do you, do you give for this kind of person? What are some steps they can at least take to, I don't know, <laughs> do something, <laughs> maybe get grazed by the bullet instead of it going straight through their forehead? Well, physically moving is actually super important. Physically moving is super important. If you're in a, if, I mean, if you're in the States, it's already really hard, but if you can't get to a, a, a level of remoteness, like you, you have to go. Like if you don't want to, you, you have to understand how widespread this is going to be. This is, this is happening at, at a level of, and it was the, the protests showed you it showed you because part of this there's an intelligence operation happening i'm just going to say that from from the get-go i've right? that about it like, yeah what is happening right now is an intelligence operation and i actually believe that it's probably like the equivalent of a war between multiple intelligence agencies so the cia is definitely involved the russians are involved the chinese are involved if nothing else than just propaganda online right uh, which is very important right now. Uh, Mossad is definitely involved. MI6 is definitely involved. Like there's all of these players, they have to be involved right now. That's what you got to understand. And then not to mention the ones that are, that are um, that, that have now been revealed, like BuzzFeed just revealed that the DEA has been tasked now with covert surveillance uh, by, by the attorney general of everybody at the, at the rallies. But where have the rallies been? They've been in places like Fargo, North Dakota, Yucaipa, California. They're everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. It's not, it's not just the five major cities at this point. No. So all these people who are like, well, I'm, I'm just down here. I'm in North Texas. I got my, I got, I got my homestead. I'm, I'm fine. It's, I don't have to worry about anything down here. It's like, yo, no. And then they're like, well, well, those those anarchists are just they're down the block. It's like, yes, because they're letting it happen everywhere so that they have the justification to track everyone. Mm -hmm. And they're tracking you because they want to pick you up. The point is to get you off the streets. And it's going to be by association. Were you listening to the? Oh, you listen to the Lions Liberty podcast? Oh, we see this in your uh, your listening history. Oh, here. Oh, you you actually. Uh, oh, you listened you to know, that Vin Armani episode twice. Yeah, Vin, Vin Armani <laughs> episode. Uh huh. We we see that you. Uh, oh, you actually watched that London Reel, uh, the interviews with David Icke. Oh, actually, you watched all three. Uh, we see this here in your browser history. Uh, yeah. So, what do you think of Off to the Gulag with you? Mm -hmm. That's how it happens. So I well, like, like I say, it, I, I know I know that you would want there to be some advice, but like the time for advice 
it's like this. Put your shit in a suitcase and go. And go. I, I dated a woman, Persian woman. Her father was the minister of agriculture under the Shah. When the revolution happened, they put the clothes on their back and they traveled on camelback through the desert to escape. And they lived. Get your shit and go. That's the advice. Do you have any concerns? I'm wondering, just being this sort of dissident person, I mean, you're still technically in the United States. Do you have any concern that, you know, if there is this kind of crackdown that, you know, maybe they'll take a flight over to Saipan and uh, see what Vin's up to? They don't need to take a flight. There's a joint terrorism task force. There's a joint terrorism task force for, for Guam and Saipan. Mm-hmm. People go and look up joint terrorism task force activated. There's 56 of them. Wow. You're in one of them if you're listening to this. They've been activated. People will start disappearing. That's going, that's about to happen. Now, like I said, I've all, I'm already good with the fact that that may very well be the case, but I'm giving myself a little bit of time. You know, I'm working on, I'm working on Bitcoin now. That's, that's why this is going to be my last. There's nothing more for me to say, right? Like, we, I can't stop what's coming. I can't fight what's coming. The best that I could do for my community and the people around me and people who have listened to me and taken my advice over the years is maybe to help them give themselves a little bit more time. That's it. That's all I can do. And, and I can't do it anymore. And so if they come and get me, I won't be doing anything active. Will I be in the gulag? Will I not get to raise my children? That's a possibility. But I've discussed that with, with my family. You know, that's that's a reality. And I'm okay with that. You know, I've I've done a lot of spiritual work over the years. I mean, it's not that I'm okay with it. I'm not looking forward to it. But if it happens, I'm not gonna look back with a regret. You're on morally morally resolved on your decision. I'm morally resolved. I'm morally resolved. And so it's like, you know, I, I there's there's no reason for me to like instigate it or force it. A lot of people are gonna do that in this libertarian community because they're stupid and they're attention seekers. And they're going to be the first in the gulag. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not forcing it because the stuff I'm doing in Bitcoin right now is stuff that nobody else either is willing or can do. And I can have a big impact there. And I can have a big impact with my children. And so that's what I'm focused on. Well, then, uh, I really appreciate your time, man. This has been awesome. I'm glad uh, you wanted to just fit this one last interview in before you uh, go off into whatever you're going to go off into there in Saipan. But uh, I guess I don't want to call them your last words. I still feel like we're going to hear something from Vin Armani at some point down the road. I know everyone likes to hang it up. It's an old, it's an old pro wrestling thing. I mean, these guys yes. retire and then in 20 years later, they're still having a match, you know, we still see the undertaker out there. So, um, I feel like we might hear from you at some point again, but at least for now, for a little while, do you want to have, do you have any last sort of last words to, uh, to impart on the audience, on anybody who's been following you over the years here? Um, besides just get the hell out. <laughs> yeah, I'll still, I mean, I'll still be speaking publicly and about Bitcoin and if people want to, you know, see more of my writing as this carries on, I'm still going to be writing in our newsletter counter markets, which is an agorist newsletter. We write a lot about entrepreneurship. We write a lot about free markets. Um, I'll still be writing in there. I, I think that now is the time. Now is the time to survive. That's the first thing. So survive. That's, that's the first thing that you need to do. 
And then when you get to a place where you feel that you can be in, in relative calm, you know, and not have to completely have your head on a swivel the whole time and be Anne Frank in an attic, uh, metaphorically, then start building because it's not over. There's no end of history. This is just yet another cycle. And so I've gotten myself to a place where I can build. And there's a you know small community of people and growing here on this island who are interested in the same idea of building what's next and using this little you know microcosm as kind of a prototype of some of the things that, that we can do in the future when it comes to liberty. Because the, the journey of liberty isn't over, not, not by a long shot, and it never will be. And so if people find their way here, you know, they're welcome. They're absolutely welcome. And, and just in the same way that people supported me and my family when, when I touched down, uh, I plan to pay that forward as well. So, um, you know, there is a support system here for the people who want to come and who want to build. Not rabble rousers, not people who want to draw attention, but people who realize this is a multi-generational project. And now is the time that we're, we're going we're gonna to plant seeds and we're going to build literally and figuratively. At the end of the day, that's all people can do besides, you know, getting yourself out of Dodge or moving yourself physically somewhere else. At the end of the day, like you said, we can't change all the events that are happening around us. Uh, much of society is too far gone. The events are already in motion. We can either just stress out about it, sit on our hands, be sad about it, be worried about it, or we can take matters into our own hands and at least put ourselves in a better situation, our family and loved ones in a better situation and build something for ourselves. Because that's, that's the only way we're going to get out of this on the other end is if a bunch of people do that, is if all of these like-minded people take charge of their own lives and take charge of themselves and you know get themselves out of this dangerous situation, whatever it may be. So I hope that uh, at least this interview will at least inspire some people who are at least on the fence or maybe they, they see the bullet, they see the, the trigger being pulled, but don't realize the bullet's quite out yet to maybe just do, to do that extra level of step taking, that extra level of thought and, and putting into, you know, kind of where they are in life and, and how they want to deal with the events that are that are unfolding around us, whether or not we, we want them to be or whether or not we think they should be is, is pretty much irrelevant at this point. They're here. They're happening. How do we deal with it? And that's the question. So I thank you so much for coming on and, and um, you know, going through all this with me. It was great hearing uh, about your whole, I've never heard your full story. I don't know if you ever told that fully in podcast oh. form, the whole tale about, um, you know, finding liberty through, for the, the gigolo. So um, <laughs> it was a really, it was a real blast, man. So I wish you the best of luck, dude. And uh, keep up the great work. We'll keep on roaring because we're going to he be hearing from you. Like I said, I think we're going to be hearing from you in it's one way or another at some point. But for now, keep up the great work. And we'll see you soon. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> All right, kitty cats, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vin Armani in what will be his last uh, media appearance for quite some time. So I, I hope you enjoyed it. The Pride, of course, our supporters on Patreon, which you can find more about over on patreon.com slash Lions Liberty. They got this interview first. They got it hot off the presses. The rest of you wonderful people had to wait, but we appreciate all of you out there listening each and every week. Even if you're not a member of the Pride, even if you don't support us over on Patreon, where we give you tons of bonus audio and video content and live streams, of course, and access to our secret Facebook group and on top of a ton of other perks, depending on what level you sign up at. But there's another really, really easy way you can help this show, especially if you're new and haven't done this yet. You can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a great review. If you do so, we will uh, take a look at your comments and read them out on air. Or if you have a topic or question to bring up, we will do that. Uh, so please head on over to Apple Podcasts. You can really leave us a review anywhere. Stitcher's great. Uh, Spotify is great. Anywhere you can rate and rank us is 
great, but Apple is still the biggest part of that podcast market share. So that helps us so much. It doesn't cost you a dime. And of course, just sharing the show, telling people about it. Of course, it's not just me here on Mondays. We are, in fact, the greatest libertarian variety show on earth. You've also got Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. He's done some killer interviews lately, uh, as well as John Odie Odermatt wrapping things up on Fridays with his weekly hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system. He has also been killing it. These guys are killing it. What can I say? I hope I'm even coming close to living up to the work that my uh, compatriots are doing on the rest of this podcast feed. But I encourage you to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a darn thing. And I should be back with you tomorrow for a brief update from Gret Glyer on the projects we are doing to help donors see uh, fight people that are being affected by lockdowns across the world. They are really doing a big push to end lockdowns in the third world specifically because it is, it is hitting the third world so much harder than it is uh, for a lot of us elsewhere. So please do tune in for that. And until next time, my friends, live long and live free.